we are seeing an increase in support and especially funding in the agricultural sector in Africa. But what is being funded is going straight to the private sector and the private interests. And to look at that, you have to speak about the last 40, 50 years of conditionalities that have basically paved the way for the kind of reality we have at present. Are you wondering how you can learn more about food? Well, you're in the right place. This is the Chakula Podcast, brought to you by the Root to Food Initiative, a show that celebrates authentic Kenyan dishes and serves you hot conversations about food in Kenya from an economic, social, and political lens. Semanasi Kwenye social media, at Root to Food on Instagram, at Root to Food on Twitter, and Root to Food on Facebook. And now, here's your host, Felistas Mwalia. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chakula Podcast. I'm your host, Felistas Mwalia, Project Officer at Root Food Initiative, which is a program of the Heinrich Paul Foundation, Nairobi Office. I'm also a member of the Root Food Alliance. Today we'll be having a very interesting stroke radical conversation on development aid and the impact of development aid on our food systems. Yeah, and I'll be joined by Ruth Nyambura, who's a feminist, and organizer whose research interests are primarily on the agrarian political economy, ecology in Africa, as well as other parts of the global south. She has written extensively on various aspects of the current agrarian transformations in Africa with her overall work focusing on the ideological underpinnings of the new green revolution in Africa and its ties to philanthropic capitalist organizations such as Gates Foundation and the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa. Ruth's research also analyzes the rapidly changing policy and legislative frameworks across the continent related to biosafety and trade related aspects of intellectual property rights regime which are not only criminalizing the rights of smallholder farmers to use their traditional or indigenous seeds but also opening up the space for foreign agribusiness companies on the continent. She's also a founder and convinced African ecofeminist collective. Karibu sana Ruth. Thank you so much Felicis. It's so wonderful to be in conversation with you and the Root to Food initiative. So to start us off Ruth, perhaps you could tell us or you could just explain more on how development aid works when it comes. How does it happen from production to consumption and looking at it from a whole food systems perspective? Okay, Felicis, this is a really important question. Um, and especially because in the last 15 years, uh, we've seen quite a bit of conversation around does Africa need trade or does Africa need aid, you know? And at the at the face value, it seems like a very progressive, uh, you know, discussion, and it is to some extent, but still it, it obscures the political questions and, and the power relations at play with regard to aid and with regard to trade. But importantly, it doesn't speak to the histories of aid and development assistance on the continent of Africa, but also not just on the continent of Africa, but throughout the global south amongst formerly colonized uh, countries. So we do know that, you know, the history of development assistance and aid as we know it at this particular moment in time, you know, um, so colonial relations, 
relations, you know, were transformed into, you know, into aid relations or development assistance relations um, after colonization for Africa, when most African countries gained independence in the 60s uh, and then the early 70s. So, you know, the, the colonial master colonized relationship gets transformed into, you know, development um, assistance. But what we know for sure is that with aid and development assistance, you know, uh, the processes of extraction in which Africa which the global south continue to be sites of extraction you know I mean you know the, the whole conversation around the center and the periphery do not get changed so in many ways aid uh, you know which is normally pushed and you know recreated and the narratives around it as such a benevolent act from the global north or formerly or former colonizers you know but actually doesn't transform capitalism doesn't really radically transform the the long relationships from uh, you know the colonial times to now what you call the colonial afterlives so in a nutshell this is what you know this is the, the very basic history of uh, of aid and development assistance but specifically when we come to the issue of the issue of agriculture so we have to speak specifically about you know um, you know at the decade after you know the decade of the decade uh, the two decades after uh, independence where we have a neoliberal glo- globalization you know in the form of structural adjustment programs pushed by the IMF um, and the World Bank you know, of course also you know, at the point we have the, in the 19 in the 1970s we have the great oil crisis which definitely affects the economies of uh, of the global south so in comes you know structural adjustment programs being pushed by you know international financial institutions such as the World Bank and the IMF you know and the idea or rather the ideological underpinnings around it and the narratives being pushed is that African governments so I'm going to speak about Africa but really you can copy paste it when it comes to the rest of the global south or formerly colonized uh, countries so the, the what what is basically being said is that African governments you know the African state the post colonial state is incompetent you know unable to deliver uh, you know um, uh, services is corrupt you know is in, is incapable of delivering rights of delivering services to to its citizens so then what is pushed is that the private sector you know should get a freehold you know over the state you know and what the state should basically do is you know a rolling back of the state but then there's a critique of that is that african governments don't step back there's no rolling back of the state but the state actually emerges as a supporter structural supporter of the private sector the whole idea of you know structural adjustment programs or the idea being pushed by why structural adjustment programs were pushed or at least uh, this was the narrative it's a problematic narrative to say the least uh, it didn't reflect the reality uh, on the ground it didn't reflect the the, the, the difficulties that uh, post colonial uh, african government were facing but so the idea was that the african african governments african states were completely incompetent you know full of corruption incapable of providing the much needed services to the people of Africa and so in order for them to be able to get the support from the international community and this support at that particular point came through structural adjustment programs which are basically these are loans you know these are not grants these are loans with serious conditionalities the african government african governments or the african state had to step back from its role you know and sort of like you know its contract its social contract with the citizens and allow private companies to step in but even the stepping back of african governments you know it's 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 posited as stepping back but the reality is it's not that african governments stepped back but they stepped in with regard to supporting the private sector
sector to take charge, you know, of the public sphere, of the commons also. So this is basically the whole premise, you know, and, and, and a very short history of what, you know, um, how development assistance and aid, you know, uh, transforms itself over the last, what, 40, 50 years, in the last decade since African, a majority of African, I mean, all African governments, uh, I mean, countries got um, independence. So that is the reality. With regard to the question of do African governments or do, does Africa need aid, for example, or development assistance, the very quick answer would be no. No, in the sense that with if this, the current conditions of aid and assistance remain, then they are a problem. You know, they further entrench the inequalities, uh, you know, and the colonial afterlives and capitalism within the continent, right? But if you're to think about a question of reparations, you know, uh, and especially reparations, I want to talk about reparations. If you're to think about, you know, the North righting the wrongs, you know, and these wrongs go, you know, from the transatlantic slave trade to, you know, to the colonial encounter that we experience and to neoliberal globalization, the role of, you know, Western multinational corporations uh, on the continent, but also in the ways in which, you know, Western governments and corporations continue to prop up local elites, very problematic local elites that we see across the continent, then, you know, aid or development assistance doesn't make sense. So if we're to talk about meaningful aid, actually, I shy away from using the term aid. You know, we need to rethink the relationship between the global north and the global south. Something fundamental, something structural must take place. Because this is not a poor continent, you know, this is not a poor continent. You know, the, the North is is rich or the West is rich because of the resources of Africa, of Latin America and Asia and colonized peoples. You know, this is how they make their wealth and still continue to make their wealth. We are we continue to be sites of extraction. This is not a this is not a continent that needs charity or needs aid. You know, it needs fundamental remaking of the you know social relations and the relationships, political, economic, cultural between the North and the South. But of course, you know, dealing with course with the with the particular local and internal conditions that arise out of these relationships, which include the local elite. Yeah, so that would be my my answer to my very long answer to that question. We know how political food is, and just to think of it when we're talking about aid or as development assistance, how does it happen at a from basically how does it happen from like consumption, production to distribution? Is there any influence that comes with aid to our food systems? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and again, uh, you know, history is very important uh, because sometimes we tend to think that we arrive at the moment we are in out of thin air, but there are long histories to it. So, I mean, we think about, I mean, I think about, you know, food and and, and, and aid and development assistance, you know, uh, you know, you have to go back. It's actually a history that goes back, you know, I don't have, I don't want to do that now. When we think about specifically aid, you know, you think about how the United States government, for example, begins to use food because food is political, as you said, you know, and aid, food aid is very, very political. It has been political for decades. This is not something that started 10, 20 years ago. What we know, for example, uh, during the anti-colonial movements and anti-colonial period, the American government in, tra- in terms of trying to, to push back the role of, you know, left uh, leftist movements, you know, radical leftist anti-colonial movements, and of course, the rise of the Soviet Union, for example, they literally used food aid, you know, as in, in terms of a carrot and stick situation, you know, but also in terms of, you know, as an international policy um, project for them. So this is how it's important. And, and, and I like going back to it because there's a tendency to see food aid as a neutral thing. It is not. 
it emerges out of a very specific geopolitical context, you know, uh, decades ago. Then, of course, over time, and then when, you know, in terms of like the trade agreements across uh, across the world, we see, of course, food emerging in a very particular context when we think about the World Trade Organization. Think about something as, not as sim- it's simple, but it's very, very, very nuanced and very political, such as subsidies, you know. Immediately when African governments gain independence, what happens is that, you know, the African governments are very keen on supporting the public sector, making a very, very strong public sector, you know, whether it's on education, whether it's in health, you know, whether it's in agriculture. And I'll stick to agriculture because that is, a, that is a, you know, the, the, the topic on which we are focusing on today. So with regard to agriculture, but I don't even want to say just agriculture. I want to talk about the agrarian, agrarian politics um, on the continent. So, you know, you had, you know, ministries of agriculture that, you know, uh, making sure that peasant farmers, you know, smallholder peasant farmers. And these are the most basics since time immemorial. And they continue to be basics. You know, the ability to, to be able to, uh, you know, to access extension farmers. So extension, sorry, extension services rather. So extension officers, extension services were being provided. You know, farming inputs were being provided by the by the state, either free or, or subsidized, you know. Uh, importantly, you know, and this is, remains very, very central to smallholder and peasant farmers. You know, the price guarantee at the market that you could produce food irrespective of what's happening, whether there's a drought, whether the economy is falling or whatnot, farmers would be able to price that is guaranteed at the, you know, at the farm gate. You know, not like what we have right now. So what happened is that because of structural adjustment programs and the state having to disinvest from the public sector and having this, the private sector, you know, stepping in, you know, to fill the gap, which they have never filled anyway, fill the gap of the, you know, of the public sector. What happens is that agriculture begins to collapse across the continent, you know, collapses in this particular way, which is a really, really sad indictment of the last 40, 50 years, uh, because African farmers continue, especially specifically peasant farmers, majority of whom are women, continue to provide the food that we we eat on the continent. Are very central in terms of labor. It's agriculture remains very very central in terms of labor and employment for countries, especially that are south of the Sahara. I do not use sub-Saharan Africa; it's a very racist term. So countries that are south of the Sahara, as the Sahara Desert, agriculture continues to be very very central in terms of uh, labor and employment uh, and employment. So so you have a situation where the private sector basically commodifies the full agricultural sector. You know, hunger increases in that particular period. As I said earlier, uh, at the onset of African countries in the 60s, most African countries were net food, you know, exporters. Now the majority of the continent are net food importers. We literally, you know, rely on importation of food, you know, m- mainly even from the global from the global uh, north in order to be able to feed African uh, African people. And of course, hunger affects African women and their children. And especially because we have rural urban, such high rural urban inequality. Africa has the highest rural urban inequalities in the world. It means that in rural areas and rural spaces where this food is produced, you know, unfortunately, African farmers are the hungriest, you know, because, you know, you produce the food, you're not guaranteed of prices. We have changing climates. You're never sure whether you're actually going to get, you know, the produce once you once you farm. 
from, you know, and of course, because you can't look at agriculture or the public sector in isolation. When you look at agriculture, you have to look at the health system in the public sector, the health system, the education system. So African farmers, when you farm, you get your produce because, you know, public schools are in shambles. The health system is in shambles. It means that you have to sell almost everything that you produce in order to be able to, you know, provide healthcare education for your family. And this speaks to how horrible, how criminal the structural adjustment programs process and project was. And we see that now, and I know this is another another question to be addressed after this, but that leads us to what we are seeing, you know, sort of like, you know, a reemergence you know, a resurgence of an interest in agrarian and agricultural politics in Africa by philanthropic capitalist organizations such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but even by African states through the African Union, through things like, you know, the Comprehensive Africa Agricultural Development Program. Yeah, Ruth, you actually mentioned at the beginning, you mentioned something to do with conditions, and we know he who pays the paper calls the tune. What are some of these conditions that come come with funding? Let's say funding from IMF, World Bank, what are some of the conditions when it comes to the conditionalities and the structural adjustment policies being pushed by the IMF and World Bank. But also, I must say, when we talk about the IMF and the World Bank, we are talking about the global north. Because who runs the who runs the IMF and the World Bank? You know, who has the majority of votes? Certainly not African governments. So when we talk about the IMF and the World Bank, as Eve, I'm actually going to use this word. <laughs> uh, someone might argue this is not a structural critique or analysis, but I'm going to use it. As evil as their role has been, we must remember who actually is behind them, where the money for the loans comes from. It comes from the global north, right? So these policies, the conditionalities, weakened rather than supported the institutional capacity of African governments. So the rolling back of the state across all sectors took from African governments both present and future roles around the critical development process as they were reduced to acting as enablers enforcers and guarantors of the private sector. So these policies, these conditionalities, also greatly overestimated the ability of the private sector to positively transform, in this case, as we're talking about the agricultural sector, as well as the lives of smallholder and peasant farmers who are largely and are still producing for subsistence. right? So Africa as a whole, especially when you go back to that period of time under the conditionalities, did not have a strong private sector to begin with. And so betting on the sector to structurally transform the continent and provide essential goods and services to African people was naive at best, and it continues to be criminal, right? So again, as I said, going back to the question that I answered uh, before, you know, so when we we, we had, you know, uh, guaranteed prices at the market, now what we have is that African farmers, smallholder farmers are in a very precarious situation, you know? They have no idea, you'll farm for six months or one year, you grow your crops, but you have no idea what price you'll find when you go to sell it, right? So you have African, and of course, because of the role of the middleman, because what happens when you have a, a guaranteed price at the farm gate or at the market, I mean, at the market, it means that you cut out the middleman. But after this conditionalities and the collapse of that, you have middlemen who literally mediate 
are in charge of what smallholder peasant farmers are able to get after farming. You know, people who don't know how to farm are not farming or doing anything, have the power to decide what African peasant farmers and smallholder farmers are able to get, right? So this is one of the things that has happened in terms of the conditionalities, right? In addition to that, with the rolling back of support for, you know, uh, research institutions, and I'm lucky I come from Kenya where we have really like cultural, the Kenya agricultural, you know, uh, research organization formerly, you know, you know, uh, we have that. We are lucky that we have that. One of the few African uh, countries that still have very strong research institutions around agriculture. Because of these conditionalities, most public research institutions around agriculture, you know, have been completely decimated, completely non-existent. And in, in, in place of that, we have this, you know, the private, you know, the, the you know, you have Syngenta, Bayer, and even Monsanto. There's been really radical research that has been done about it, you know, of them, you know, through public-private partnerships, you know, either supporting the small existing public research institutions or actually forming their own private research institutions. And of course, we know that research and science is also political. There's nothing neutral about science. In as much as we want to think that science and research are neutral, they're not. As you said, you know, whoever has the past strings decides the kind of research. And I'll give a very clear um, example. One of the research that has come out from the African Center for Biodiversity, which is based in Johannesburg, but does a lot of radical research across the continent, is that with, with, with especially in the last 10 years, and within the, the new, the, you know, the, uh, with AGRA, the Alliance for Green Revolution in Africa, and the New Green Revolution in Africa, the kind of research that's being funded, it's on cash crops, not on, you know, the everyday crop, you know, you know, the central crops in terms of like what feeds this continent, but rather cash crop. And ca these cash crops are not grown by smallholder farmers. These are things that are grown by middle class farmers or elite farmers or people, you know, or multinational corporations. So the economies of scale for cash crop completely lock out smallholder farmers. But this is what the research money and support is going into. So this is why I say that even research is not neutral. So yeah, so Felicis, this is what you see 40 years later, after the onset of conditionalities, these are the implications. You know, where you, you 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 barely have any public research institutions around agriculture to speak of. You know, you farm, but you have no idea what you're going to make because there's a middleman, you know? So you have no idea what kind of profit you're going to make. So agriculture becomes, by and large, a loss-making, you know, endeavor, despite the fact that without smallholder farmers, we would not be able to eat on this continent. Very little support. And even when you talk about the Comprehensive Africa Agriculture Development, uh, you know, program, which was passed in 2003 by the African Union, and where, you know, um, you know, it said that by 2015, you know, at least 10% of the national budgets had to support agriculture. Culture. By 2015, the last time I checked, only nine African countries were putting in 10% of their national budgets into agriculture. But it's not just about even those, those nine countries. When you look at what the agricultural budget goes to, it isn't for smallholder farmers. It is for industrial farming systems. So even the little African, you know, the little money, you know, the little the, the African governments that are sticking, adhering to this, you know, policies that have been passed continentally, still 
what is being funded is problematic. So it's not just about saying that we need to support agriculture, but what is being supported? The same thing, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the philanthropic uh, capitalist organizations have been pouring in so much money, including the IMF and the World Bank, including Global North governments. You know, we had the, the new Alliance for Food Security and Nutrition in Africa, which fortunately African movements were able to successfully, you know, uh, beat back because it was a neoliberal initiative around agriculture in Africa that was meant to open up Africa for corporate agricultural interests, you know? So it's not just about, we are seeing an increase in support and especially funding in the agricultural sector in Africa. But what is being funded is going straight to the private sector and the private interests. And to look at that, you have to speak about the last 40, 50 years of conditionalities that have basically paved the way for the kind of reality we have at present. It's quite devastating to say that even though we get these conditions which end up not not even benefiting the fat farmer, not even solving the situation of hunger in the country, but we still keep going for more funding. But besides that, I know we also have people who argue like, in as much as you're criticizing or talking radically about funding, some people might see that some of this funding that comes through like the philanthropic organization that heavily targets small-scale farmers, we have seen, basically they're getting more funding and we also see them trying to do projects when it comes to post-harvest losses, those are the good things, or soil conservation. But does the problem really come when they also try to work with farmers by giving them fertilizers, pesticides? I don't know where they, to differentiate the good and the bad of these philanthropic organizations. So I guess philanthropic organizations sits, sort of sit at the top of the food chain. Then we have ordinary non-governmental organizations and whatnot and then public-private partnerships between the state and the private sector. So the thing is this. Look, what has happened after 40, 50 years of using fertilizers and, I mean, you know, no, I mean, you know, the thing is this, you know, we've had a situation, especially when you look at, for example, the Rift Valley, the, the Rift Valley and the western block of the country in Kenya, you know, we have soils that, I mean, the uh, Igaton University did, uh, I remember they did a really amazing research in the year 2013, which basically did a soil profile of the country. And the reality is that so much of the soils are dead because of the kinds of, you know, fertilizer, I mean, chemical inputs in general that have been used. And of course, these chemical inputs are constantly being pushed, you know, because of course, industrial farming, even when smallholder farmers, they're told that you must use this amount of fertili chemical fertilizers of herbicides and whatnot. And of course, it speaks to how indigenous agricultural knowledge, indigenous farming knowledge continues to be denigrated, you know, by the state, by the private sector. And it's also knowledge that we are losing because this is knowledge that is, has been passed on from generation to generation. I mean, look, the average African farmer is 63 years old. You know, not exactly so many young Africans are lining up. And those who are lining up are lining up under the auspices of the new green revolution in Africa, where the idea is to, as they say, not my words, but as they say, to sexify agriculture on the continent. But the thing is, the, 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 the politics of agriculture in Africa go beyond feeding people. People reduce it to very, very technical and of course, the technical is also political. It goes beyond feeding people. Yes, a quarter of the of the of this continent, for example, the estimates are at least 250 million Africans are severely food insecure. But the politics around agriculture is goes beyond feeding people. Land question. Look at a country like South Africa, for example, where now almost 30 years after gaining independence, you know, land is still is is worse, more concentrated than it was. People reduce the, 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 the issues around Africa, African African agriculture as limited to feeding people. 
We have to have deeper structural conversations about land, for example. Land re redistribution remains central, as they were, whether it was during the anti-colonial period or 20 years or 30 years ago. I mean, I come from Kenya where land questions have been very, very hot and pivotal, especially during, you know, election, election season. So land remains important. So the questions are around land, around what kinds of technologies are appropriate, around what kinds of markets are essential a kind around what kinds of economic systems and i say and 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 the kinds of movements i'm part of on the continent that capitalism which industrial agriculture is based on is completely incapable not only of feeding people but of doing anything meaningful it is destructive to the planet in addition to everything it does so we have a problem with in terms of like the soil and dead soils and whatnot and so on and so forth. That's I'm not denying that. But if these projects and initiatives are not accompanying a large, a larger political project to radically transform the agri it's not just agriculture, the agrarian political economy and ecology and the systems on the continent, then they literally merely become projects. And projects are not able are not capable of supplanting the deep-rooted inequalities and marginalizations that smallholder and peasant farmers face on the continent, that African people face on this continent, but are also are not able to supplant the neo-colonial relationship between the global north and the global south, multinational corporations and African governments and African people. So that is what I'm trying to say is that these projects are important, but without a radical political project behind them, they end up serving the interests of the corporate interests and Western and Northern interests. You know, one of the things I was thinking about reflect before this conversation began, I think about the Mau Mau, we call them the Mau Mau. We forget that their name you know, the other name was the Kenya Land and Freedom Army. I think it's important to remember that the struggles we have over land, over food, over the commons, over the seeds, over whatnot. These are battles that have been fought for for at least a decade. You know, these are not things that arrive on our doorsteps now in 2021 during a pandemic. So history is important. But ultimately and importantly, whatever we are doing around food justice, food sovereignty, if it does not shake and transform the structural causes of the, you know, marginalizations and inequalities we face, then we are really doing a disservice for those who fought for independence. We've now come to the end of the show. Thank you so much, Ruth, for your interesting insights. And I also want to say a big thank you to our listeners for listening in until the end of the show. If you really like this episode or if you found this episode very useful, like, share, subscribe, and also leave a comment. Until next time, bye-bye.